Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. So a few days ago uh, in the United States of America, there was uh, a letter that was published by Harper Magazine. I think there were around 150 academics that there were academics, activists, writers in general who had basically uh, written, signed a letter that was criticizing the cancel culture that has engulfed America. The letter, you know, criticized Trump and also spoke about the excesses in the left. And uh, that led to a response uh, uh, in the form of another letter, which was in defense of cancel culture and uh, maybe why cancel culture is good or bad in its own way. And then there was this particular article that had come in uh, guardian.com and uh, there was there were four academics or thinkers who had uh, given their views on the same. And one of them was Samuel Moyne, who actually did sign the letter, the 150, uh, he was one of the 150 people who signed the letter. And then he gave an interesting, uh, second uh, opinion in this guardian.com article and uh, then that was shared by the way i did not read it and it was only i came across that article only when matt actually shared it and uh, matthew had tweeted that uh, my views are similar to this so i had contacted matt i was like okay i would like to you know talk to you about it and uh, here we are so matt uh, thanks for coming on the podcast once again oh anytime yeah no i always have a good time uh, chatting with you and i've gotten some great responses from your listeners so uh, it should be a treat all right, Matt, let's start like this. Let's first uh, place, uh, uh, if, if you could do this for me, if you could explain what uh, Samuel Moyne was trying to say. It, it was just a couple of paragraphs so that at least uh, the listeners and the viewers, uh, they can at least know what Moyne's point of view was. And then we can get into the discussion of freedom of expression at a larger level. Sure. So maybe just by way of context, right? Uh, so this letter was published with Harper's Magazine uh, in mid-July, and it was signed by you know, a couple several hundred uh, prominent intellectuals, commentators, academics, you name it, right? Uh, and what was interesting about this letter and kind of distinguished it uh, as a subject of controversy were who the signatories were. Uh, I mean, at this point, everyone knows that members of the IDW uh, or the political right don't particularly care for what we broadly call cancel culture, uh, or they claim to be free speech absolutists. You can think of people like Dave Rubin or Ben Shapiro, or of course, Jordan Peterson, who we've discussed before. Uh, and Interestingly enough, none of these people um, were signatories uh, on this letter. Most of the people who'd signed it came across as kind of liberal moderates, uh, and there were even a few progressives uh, on there, people like Drusilla Cornell, uh, Noam Chomsky, probably most famously, and Samuel Moyne, who you mentioned. Uh, and this, of course, aroused a lot of furor, since, of course, uh, the position was, well, if even progressives are getting tired of this, then what does that really say? Isn't this a problem, and shouldn't we be getting rid of it, right? Uh, and Moyne is a curious case because rather like Noam Chomsky, he's well known to be as a critic uh, of liberalism and liberal capitalism, right? Uh, if you read Moyne's books, The End of Human Rights, uh, for example, is probably the best starting point. Uh, he's highly critical of a lot of kind of cherished liberal tropes. Uh, he feels that we need to go for far further uh, in emancipating human potential than what we find in contemporary liberal democratic societies, uh, particularly liberal capitalist societies. Uh, and so it's a little bit odd, of course, uh, to see him suddenly standing up for freedom of expression, criticizing cancel culture, so on and so forth. Uh, and in the letter, uh, he makes the argument, uh, the letter for the Guardian, I should say, that he is certainly not a free speech absolutist. Uh, and I think he makes the good point, uh, and this appears in his books as well, that no society uh, places absolute emphasis on freedom of speech. Uh, even countries like the United States that claim to cherish it far more than anywhere else in the world. right? Uh, and we could talk about instances where it's necessary to put restrictions on speech or where the United States or other countries impose restrictions on speech. 
Um, but Moran's point is that even though I'm not a free speech absolutist, I do think that there are circumstances where more speech can be highly beneficial. And this is where I deviate from other members of the progressive community. And he also iterated that he thought that people have for too, too long essentially dismissed uh, the notion of cancel culture, that they implied that it's not really a problem or this is just kind of a right-wing conspiracy. Um, I'm kind of you know, generalizing here across some of uh, the other commentators as well. Uh, and he said, we actually do need to start taking this seriously, particularly since we should have the courage of our convictions uh, and stand up for what we believe in, um, you know, in the arena of public debate rather than necessarily trying to silence uh, those who disagree with us if they hold sufficiently moderate uh, positions, right? Uh, so that's, again, just summarizing very briefly. Uh, and I should say, I don't agree with Moyne about everything. Uh, and I certainly don't agree with uh, Moyne about everything if you're talking about his more extensive academic work, right? Uh, but I do think that cancel culture is a problem. Uh, I had an article that came out about this yesterday for Aereo magazine. Um, yeah. I don't think that's a problem exclusively for the left, and we can get into that as well, because I think that yeah. you see uh, iterations of this kind of mentality across the political spectrum. Uh, but I do think that it is a specific, particular problem for leftists since we're so affiliated uh, with cancel culture. Uh, and I think it's something that we naturally need to wean ourselves off of if we're going to be successful in the public and ultimately the political arena. Uh, certainly right. in developed countries uh, where, for rightly, uh, many people cherish freedom of speech uh, and robust dialogue. All right, absolutely. So this is a good primer to start. So I'm going to place my uh, analysis or my hypothesis here. Mm -hmm. So this is how I uh, assume freedom of speech, uh, where freedom of speech runs a problem with. So I, uh, in my opinion, freedom of speech is always cherished uh, by uh, who is the heterodox at, 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 at that point of time in a cultural zeitgeist if if i was to say so let's say it was when it was the 60s or the 70s or the 80s uh, everybody remembers how led zeppelin and the rock bands were uh, the sign of devil and the conservatives in america wanted to control free speech right and uh, then you go into the 80s uh, what was that uh, 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 fuck the police was nwa right yeah, mm -hmm. right. yeah. if i remember that so i was like a nine-year-old album i should say yeah, yeah, it was an amazing album. I still remember Ice Cube was wonderful. So yeah, so that that was amazing. Uh, uh, and that time too, they were uh, the ones who actually wanted the curbs on free speech. Oh, you can get into George Carlin, Lenny Bruce. You know, it was not like Lenny Bruce was uh, going into jail because of uh, cancel culture of the left wing, right? Nelly, mm -hmm. Lenny Bruce was being uh, attacked by the right wing in America. So cancel culture uh, is, I don't believe, uh, iteration of just the left. I believe in my view, cancel culture is the iteration of the orthodoxy of that time. Mm -hmm. So the orthodoxy likes to control. And whenever the orthodoxy tends to lose control, it doesn't matter. So in my view today, the orthodoxy in, in the West is the left-wing orthodoxy. I don't believe the right-wing is actually the orthodoxy. Maybe in sport, you could give me an example of Colin Kaepernick, he is suffering because of the orthodoxy in sport because I think in sport there is still a huge conservative bent to it. And sports has a, in general has a lot more conservatives, I think, watching it in terms of viewership. So I think he did face the pump in that sense. But then uh, there was a pushback. So you can say sport is not entirely a right-wing thing. But do you think that uh, 
what, what would you say to the accusation that cancel culture is a uniquely left-wing thing? Or am I right in my analysis that cancel culture has always uh, existed and that it just changes its iteration depending on who's the cultural orthodoxy and who's the cultural heterodoxy? Well, I think that you're right to point out a lot of these instances of people suppressing freedom of speech going back quite some ways. Uh, and it's worth noting that this is an important narrative to keep in mind when we talk about threats to freedom of speech in the 21st century, right? Uh, it's worth noting that about 80 years ago, uh, James Joyce's Ulysses was considered so scandalous uh, that people didn't want it read in the United States. Uh, no, now it's considered a classic literature, uh, and you can go on the National Review or you can go on to any number of conservative sites talking about people praising it as a highlight of Western civilization and a demonstration, of course, of the West superiority to everywhere else, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera all those kind of cliches, right? Uh, and then, you know, you rightly pointed out, you know, in the 1960s, there was a big pushback against various forms uh, of cultural expressivism that were considered too deviant. Uh, you know, some of this looks uh, kind of funny, actually, in hindsight. Uh, your viewers might know the band Doors uh, with Jim Morrison, yeah. right? Uh, Jim Morrison has a great song called Light My Fire, right? Yeah. Uh, and there's a line, girl, we couldn't get much higher. And that was taken as, you know, either hypersexual or kind of an invitation to do drugs. Uh, and he wasn't allowed to say that on television. It was considered too scandalous. Right. Uh, yeah. So we've come a long way since then. And I think it's important to remember that in many developed countries, we've come a long way. Right. Uh, because when we talk about threats to freedom of speech, it's worth noting that speech is far freer now uh, than it ever has been historically. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in the 1960s, uh, you know, even showing modest iterations uh, of human sexuality uh, in a public forum would be considered scandalous you know, beyond the pale. Uh, and now, of course, you know, if you want to watch any number of, you know, sex-filled romps, uh, you know, you could find that pretty easily on Netflix, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking about the movie 365 that my wife and I kind of laughed at just the other day, right? Which is basically kind of softcore pornography produced, uh, you know, under the auspices of creating like a Polish version of Fifty Shades of Grey, right? Uh, and, you know, that's on yeah. Netflix. It's considered just a stand film and you can watch it, right? Uh, and the reason that I bring this all up is the kind of moral panic uh, that sometimes arises out of freedom of speech, I think is generated not so much because there are more restrictions uh, or more threats to freedom of speech right now than there were before, but precisely because there's so much speech uh, and there are so few, few constraints on it uh, that we're really trying to arbitrate these very nuanced uh, kind of questions uh, about should there be any barriers to what people should say any longer, True. right? True. Uh, and you know, these are complicated questions because uh, they're not as obvious, perhaps, as they were back in the 1940s, uh, when any thinking person could say, absolutely, Ulysses should be read by a broader public, right? Uh, when it comes to your thesis about whether or not, you know, the questions about freedom of speech uh, tend to come, arise because there are people with heterodox views who are challenging cultural homogeneity, right? Or, or, or culturally homogenous viewpoints uh, backed up by power. I certainly think that there is something to that, right? Uh, and ironically enough, you know, the theorist who probably opined on it most cogently was uh, Antonio Gramsci, right? Uh, yeah. Who was an Italian Marxist uh, who wrote about how it is that intellectuals, the media, so on and so forth, establish a kind of cultural hegemony that uh, iterates what's acceptable and what's not acceptable for public consumption and discourse. Uh, and that this is a form of power that needs to be analyzed critically and carefully. Uh, and ironically enough, many conservatives uh, seem to have finally picked up on this theme uh, in fact, I saw somebody writing an article talking about cultural homogeneity uh, for the Federalist Society just the other day. Right? So people on the political right have finally become Gramscians, uh, whether that's good or not. 
but I would actually push back a little bit against the argument uh, that who gets to dictate uh, what is acceptable uh, for freedom of speech depends uh, on whoever happens to be in charge on the political spectrum, right? Uh, and the reason is because while politics has something to do that with this, uh, we also have to really look at who has control of the media, technological apparatuses, who's able to set the trends for public discourse. Uh, and that's remained relatively constant in Western societies, right? There are large corporations uh, and big media conglomerates that have substantial power in framing the public discourse uh, and determining what happens to be acceptable and what is not acceptable, right? Uh, and the imperative behind all these kinds of corporations has always been the same, right? Uh, making money. Uh, and this is why I think actually a more nuanced take on these issues isn't just looking at it in terms of left and right, uh, so much as in terms of what's in the interest uh, of these organizations. And I think you've seen a lot of interesting material starting to surface on this, for instance, analyzing what's sometimes called woke capitalism, right? Yeah. Uh, and the reason why I point this out is because in some sense, a lot of the stuff about cancel culture that we're seeing right now, while important, uh, is also insulating cultural issues from the broader questions I think we should be asking, uh, which is who is it that's able to control uh, who gets access to the public sphere and whose voice is amplified in the public sphere? Uh, and why is it that we should allow them to have these kinds of powers? Shouldn't you know the power to have your viewpoint be democratized in some kind of fundamental way is the question that's more central to me. Yeah, I agree with you. But then, then here's my... my uh follow-up to that then i get it uh, it's complicated but at the end of the day freedom of speech as as far as i'm concerned has two layers of it right mm -hmm. so in america there's obviously uh, the freedom of speech when it comes to in uh, relation to the state the state obviously cannot stop you from uh uh most cases other than let's say you're not allowed to divulge your nuclear codes or let's say uh, you cannot you know make a direct call to violence where there is a clear and clear and eminent threat that's the standard right the brandenburg versus ohio standard which is pretty much set in uh, law uh, till the extent that in the uh, united states of america even supreme court judgments have clearly stated that even hate speech is part of free speech that you can be openly racist you can be openly you know talking uh, uh, using racist slurs but you can't uh, be legally liable for stuff like that but here's the problem what cancel culture has become is cancel culture is not able to hit you legally. But what cancel culture does is it actually hits you socially. It, uh, it, it, it interferes with your job security. It interferes with your uh, cultural acceptability. Uh, maybe you can't live in a certain society. Maybe you will be thrown out of certain places. Maybe you'll be ostracized in a uh, cancel culture to me. Uh, and I come from a society that has uh, caste. So to me, cancel culture is not a, a weird sort of uh, intellectual untouchability being practiced right now. Mm -hmm. And I have never seen this kind of untouchability ever being practiced in my personal experience in my modern in my life. I, I mean, I'm 39 years old, will be 40 in January. And in my life, and I have been I've been following American politics for a long time for uh, various reasons. And, you know, it's, it's just weird people. The world follows America. America doesn't follow anyone, but the world tends to follow America. And I follow Canadian politics too, for obvious reasons, uh, uh, having family members who are from Canada. So what I've seen is that 
cancel culture is intellectual untouchability now uh, for a person who is so vehemently opposed to any kind of uh, caste in any form and it it's a very touchy subject for me so i find this to be very disturbing now here's my question to you then who decides which speech is okay even in a social structure and where do we draw these lines and uh, and my follow up will be about the social media giants but let's first expand on this who gets to decide and how do we draw these lines well the first thing i should say is that um, the liberal discourse around freedom of speech has always been rather narrowly focused on the state uh, and one of the things that i think you're rightly doing is insisting that we need to look beyond the state right uh for instances where freedom of speech might actually be constrained. Uh, and just before I kind of get into that, I should point out that the state still does impose actually far more restrictions on freedom of speech uh, than most people are willing uh, to acknowledge, right? Uh, so for instance, while you know the United States may allow hate speech, right? Uh, there are still substantial laws around fraud. There's still substantial laws around libel. Um, there's mm -hmm. still, you know, substantial laws that exist arguing, you know, maintaining that you can't disseminate false information about people. Uh, and probably the most important example uh, of how it is that the state regulates free speech is that speech is only allowed to be articulated in certain forms, right? Uh, certain very narrowly circumscribed forms, uh, at least until the advent of the digital age. So for instance, I'm allowed to express myself walking down the street, right? Picketing with other people. Uh, but I'm not allowed to go into say, Microsoft or Apple headquarters, uh, you know, uh, appropriate the territory there as an expression of speech because the state backs up the private property laws uh, and the private property rights uh, of those corporations and indicates that whether or not I have something to say about how these entities operate, I'm not allowed to criticize them if doing so means appropriating or using their private property even for a temporary period of time. Uh, and there were big debates about this back in the 1960s when you think about sit-ins uh, or people who would occupy uh, private spaces to try to make a statement against, you know, for instance, how universities or how the government operated, right? Uh, and a lot of these days still go on today. Um, and you can think about some of the hoopla that emerged around Occupy Wall Street or some of the stuff that's going on right now about Black Lives Matter uh, and, you know, occupying certain parts of land or destroying private property and so on and so forth, right? Uh, so there's still a lot of questions that we have to ask about how the state regulates speech. Uh, and I think a lot of these have to pertain to how it is that the state insulate certain forms of property uh, from various forms of expression, rightly so in some circumstances, I think, right? Because I don't want protesters just showing up at my house, sitting on my lawn uh, and, you know, saying, you know, down with this person, right? Uh, but there are complexities there that need to be accounted for, right? When it comes to what you're talking about in terms of non-state regulation of speech, uh, I think, again, the liberal outlook has always struggled with taking these seriously precisely because liberalism has always seen itself as primarily a kind of anti-statist uh, or anti-political authority philosophy, right? Uh, now it's become more nuanced over the last hundred years, uh, but you know, there's still a lot of vestige of this you can see in how it is that liberals look uh, at speech uh, and freedom of speech, right? Uh, and what you're describing, interestingly enough, I'd say, is something that is actually much, really much uh, sorry, actually much older than liberalism, uh, which are the consequences of, if you want to put it very simply, public shaming, uh, which is in many cases what cancel culture amounts to, right? Uh, it's a form of public shaming that's designed to elicit private or personal consequences for the person who has a deviant opinion, right? 
Uh, and when I say private consequences, what I mean is that this is going to impact your work or your business, your professional life. Uh, and when I say personal consequences, it's that we're many, we're trying to ostracize you from conventional society, your friends, your family members, uh, members of your community, so on and so forth, right? Uh, and much like you know debates around shaming, uh, you know, going from the Scarlet Letter uh, back to you know the Bible uh, or other sacred texts, you know, uh, there are a lot of complications there. Uh, there are a lot of complications in the 21st century uh, about when it's appropriate to shame people, right? Uh, and I think the problem that people have with cancel culture, uh, I think rightly so in many circumstances, is they feel that we've gone too far uh, in deciding that certain kinds of activity or certain forms of expression are worthy of shaming. Uh, and I think another problem that relates to this is the fact that because of digital media and the advent of new communications technologies, uh, our capacity to shame uh, mm -hmm. and to denigrate someone has become much more pronounced than it ever has before, yes. right? Uh, once upon a time, if you know you read the Scarlet Letter or whatever, right? Uh, if I committed an act that was publicly shamed, uh, you know, in my town, I might need to make the difficult decision to leave. Uh, but then, you know, once I'm gone, uh, my reputation no longer follows me any longer, right? Uh, now, because of the way the internet operates, uh, people can hound me effectively forever. Uh, but information uh, and the fact that I've been hounded will, you know, be attached to me forever. Uh, and there's very little way of getting rid of it, which raises the stakes when it comes uh, to what we decide it's permissible to shame uh, and what it's not permissible to shame. Absolutely. Right? Uh, and I think that left-wing Twitter has, left-wing Twitter and left-wing online culture uh, has been in many cases as guilty of not looking uh, or reflecting very deeply on these questions uh, as everyone else. Uh, and people have been pointing this out for a long time, even on the political left. What I often point to is Mark Fisher's classic exit, uh, uh, essay, Exiting the Vampire Castle. Uh, mm. Have you ever read it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, excellent, yeah. Uh, and he talks about how it is that many people uh, in the left, online in particular, uh, have what he calls a priest's desire to excommunicate and shame, uh, an yes. academic pedant's to desire to be in the known, uh, and a hipster's desire uh, to kind of be part of the in-group, right? Uh, and you combine that all with digital technologies, which allow people to give in to their kind of tribalistic impulses, uh, and it's a pretty noxious combination, right? Uh, and so I don't. Th I think that progressive shaming uh, can often have useful consequences, right? Uh, in some circumstances, when it comes to pushing against genuine racism, uh, when it comes to pushing against things like the alt right, when it comes to things like condemning somebody like Donald Trump, who genuinely is a xenophobe. Uh, but I do also think that we've been insufficiently reflective uh, about the best way uh, to go about trying to enact social change which means that shame is almost always uh, the weapon that's turned to uh, in order to try to advance progressive causes. Uh, and I think there are a lot of instances, and this is what people pick up on, where that's not only inappropriate, but positively counterproductive, and it needs to stop, right? Uh, and the example that I usually point to, uh, following my good friend uh, and colleague, Ben Burgess, in, from uh, Zero Books. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever encountered Ben. Uh, I've only read articles of you and Ben about postmodern conservatisms. Okay, well, uh, Ben Burgess has a new book that's coming out called uh, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns uh, for Zero, which is a critique of cancel culture. Uh, but he points to the left-wing uh, bread tuber ContraPoints, uh, mm -hmm. who you might know as a famous trans activist, right? Uh, she's a trans woman. Uh, she writes, uh, sorry, she's produced some fabulous videos criticizing Donald Trump, uh, the alt-right, incels, whatever you want to call um, but because of some deviations 
uh, from the kind of social expectations that some uh, in the world of kind of trans activism have. Uh, she was widely condemned by many members on the political left for a long period of time uh, and was effectively shamed off of Twitter. Uh, and my response to that is you're getting rid of one of the most passionate, convincing uh, and effective left-wing commentators there are uh, on the basis of these fairly marginal sins that we could have a discussion about. Uh, and, you know, certainly, you know, we could ask about whether or not it's appropriate. Uh, and when you do that, uh, particularly to someone who's well associated with the political left, you only uh, have yourself to blame when you're not able to gain broad public support uh, or win any kind of real political power, right? Yeah, so so this, again, this sounds like uh, a very, very uh, weird system where I can totally relate to it because it is untouchability. It is basically a purity and pollution-based system where if you don't pass the purity test and uh, then you're called a pollutant, uh, you know, you're something uh, dirty, and the unique thing, and I think this is where, uh, not, not only is this my observation, not that I'm some brilliant guy, I mean, I think many people have made this observation, it seems to be kind of a religious thing where there's no redemption, at least Christianity offered you some sort of redemption, at least if you believed in Jesus Christ, you had a way out, right? I'm not justifying that way out, but I'm saying at least there is a way out, right, for religions. I mean, even in Hindu systems, there is some way out, but... In this system, this this new form of untouchability, there seems to be no redemption. So if you're banished by the the online tribe or the mob, you just don't have any way back to get your career down. Look, everybody is not a Barry Weiss. Let me let me be brutally honest here. Barry Weiss is famous. She could benefit from woke capitalism. Uh, on the other side. There is the other side to woke capitalism too, right? It's not just Robin DiAngelo charging people $6,000 a pop and, and making money of telling white people how horrible they are. It's not just Robin DiAngelo doing that. I mean, Barry Weiss can also play victim to woke wokeness and she can, she can also build a career after that. I'm not saying she's wrong or I'm not saying she's not justified. What I'm trying to say is that she could get away with it because she had a considerable voice. But there might be many people now, I'm not justifying what happened to that lady or what she wrote on Twitter. I remember the story a few years ago where this lady made a stupid joke about uh, going to South Africa. I don't know if you remember that. She said, I'm going to South Africa for a vacation. I hope I don't get AIDS. Oh, yes. I'm not justifying what she said. But that woman, her career was destroyed. Now, I don't know anything about her. But what I'm saying is that our... Do we want to live in a world where there is no redemption? That's my question. No, we don't. Uh, and certainly that's not a world that I want to live in, uh, right? You know, uh, and I completely agree with uh, the philosopher Severin Slavoj Žižek, right? That uh, in his worst iterations, for instance, the one that you spoke, uh, this approximates a kind of social policing uh, that's on par with what you saw in earlier generations. Uh, and then it took decades of activism uh, to push back against, to allow people to express uh, themselves as they wished, right? Uh, saying that, I think it's really important to recognize that the roots of cancel culture, as we understand them, go a lot deeper uh, than many of the analysts and critics uh, are willing to acknowledge. And I think what we need to start appreciating is that the roots of cancel culture go and touch on the way that liberal societies and liberal subjects understand themselves, right? Uh, so you, you kind of brought up the religious example, right, and how it is that redemption was offered to you. Well, one of the reasons why it is that this redemptive uh, possibility was open to people uh, is your identity wasn't wrapped up uh, in your self-expression, uh, but in a transcendent feature of your makeup like the soul, 
right? Mm -hmm. uh, your soul was more important than who you were on this earth. Uh, to a certain extent, if you were shamed by the public, right, mm -hmm. uh, that might actually be a testament to your inner purity. Uh, and God would ultimately recognize that and offer you redemption in the next life. Uh, yeah. And because the, uh, your soul is who you truly are, that's what you should care about. Uh, you know, yeah. and obviously there are a lot of theological niceties on this that we can mince and so on and so forth. But with the advent of liberalism starting, I'd say, in the 17th century in the philosophy of John Locke, uh, who's a figure beloved by conservatives, I should say, what started to become more central than these kind of transcendent features of your identity was yourself uh, and your self-expression in particular, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and your identity became much more constrained uh, to who you were, what, how you experienced the world in this life. Right. Uh, and John Locke is very expressive about this. Right. Who you are is your memories and your experiences uh, and to a certain extent, your subjective interpretation of the world. Right. How you experience it in other mm -hmm. worlds. Right. Uh, and this started out in philosophy and kind of highfalutin theory. But I think it's really become a dominant cultural feature of how it is that people understand themselves today. Right. Uh, who we are is our memories and experiences in this life. Uh, and we each have our own subjective way of interpreting the world. Uh, and there's no real basis for anyone to criticize this since there's no transcendent beyond we can appeal to. Uh, so who are you to criticize me if this is how I understand things, right? Uh, and yeah. this kind of cultural narcissism has been endlessly, or sorry, individualistic narcissism uh, has been endlessly compounded uh, by capitalism, which contends that what it is that you want should be associated with what it is that you consume, right? Uh, and there should be no barriers uh, to consumption, so therefore there should be no barriers to you configuring yourself and presenting yourself uh, the way that you desire as long as you can afford it, right? Uh, now, there yeah. are positive features to both of these developments, right? I'm not opposed to a culture of self-expressivism any more than I'm opposed to a culture uh, of, I wouldn't call it consumerism, um, but kind of, you know, material satisfaction, if you want to call it that, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but we have to appreciate that under bad conditions, both of these tendencies can lead to a lot of the characteristics uh, and objectionable qualities that we associate with world culture, right? Uh, and with cancel culture. Because uh, yeah. you have people who say things like, this is what I believe, this is who I am. There's no basis for you to criticize any of that. Uh, and if I feel like you're attacking my sense of self, um, then I'm going to object to that and I'm going to harness all the kind of social capital that I can use to try to insulate myself uh, from these kind of criticisms or from these kinds of attacks, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that yeah. includes naming and shaming you or trying to get private actors uh, to fire you so that you're no longer bothered. Well, then so be it. Uh, and, you know, you see, ironically enough, uh, left-wing activists sometimes evoke rhetoric like, well, if we got somebody fired from their position, the market has spoken, right? Uh, and we don't want these journalists any longer. Uh, the employers don't want these journalists any longer, so who cares, right? Uh, and I think this is all extremely worrisome, uh, but we have to recognize uh, that unlike the kind of standard conservative narrative, uh, this isn't some kind of deviation from liberalism uh, or from standard liberal capitalism, right? Uh, this is what liberalism and liberal capitalism looks like uh, when things are going bad uh, and when its worst tendencies uh, are given expression uh, and amplified through extremely powerful digital mediums, right? Yeah. Uh, and other forms of cultural communication. Uh, and so what we need is a more refined take on these things uh, that tries to insulate what's good about liberalism and capitalism, uh, find new ways to create it, uh, create those kinds of conditions, uh, conditions for these kind of good things, 
uh, while chucking a lot of the stuff that's bad. Uh, and I have a few ideas on that, but it's by no means a simple task. Uh, and it's certainly not just a simple task of saying, well, let's just go back to the 1940s uh, when everything was good. And, you know, uh, you might not be called out for being you know, a racist, but, you know, uh, we can call you out for reading Ulysses or whatever it happens to be. Right? Yeah. Uh, which is what I think a lot of these commentators, uh, you know, the Dave Rubens, the Ben Shapiro's, Jordan Peterson's, uh, sometimes seem to want. Right. Yeah, and and you know what's interesting to me is uh, like I find myself so so out of place in this entire discourse because I don't know where I would place myself in in American politics. I I, I disagree with uh, many things on the left, but you know I I seem to be disagreeing with many things on the right wing in Western politics too. And and when I map myself in and in, in Western culture in a very weird way because I personally don't understand what is the centrist. But actually, when I take most of these threats, I'm actually they place me smack bang in the center with uh, certain leanings to libertarianism. But what confuses me in this entire process is nobody talks about the evil. And I use the word with full responsibility because uh, nobody says, see, when you consume a cigarette, right, when you take cigarettes, there is a statutory warning. And I'm telling you what, uh, how social media actually presents a threat to freedom of expression in a very weird way. So when you consume a cigarette, you know that cigarettes are cigarette smoking is harmful to you. It's been told to you by n number of campaigns. Like in India, we even put a very hoary and gory picture on the cigarette packet itself that you should know what you're consuming. It's the same in Canada. Yeah, you get the picture of like a, yeah. yeah the you know, black lung and you know people with tubes. And, yeah, you know, exactly. Stuff, it's yeah. exactly like that. In in the case of alcohol, we know what what, what are the excesses of alcohol. Here's what's happening on social media. Everybody knows. I mean, you can check the work of Tristan Harris, who's who's basically a social, you know, a digital ethicist, ethicist in in its weird ways. And he's like, you know, uh, it's like a magic trick, and you don't know you're being fooled. And the the medium is built on making you an addict. So it's like you are going and consuming drugs, and the drug peddler does not even tell you that the drug peddler is actually a drug peddler, and you don't even know you're a drug consumer, and then these giants have so much power now i get it if this was uh, because capitalism can only work when there is competition right to me the biggest threat to free speech in a very weird way now comes from social media where they control your minds in a very weird way now somebody might come and tell me oh but you can get off it anytime you want but it's not that easy when you make the whole world dependent on social media your livelihood in a way becomes dependent on social media and then somebody comes and tells you well, oops, it's like telling someone, why don't you ride horses? You don't need a cab. But I do need a cab. The whole world works on that, right? Oh, absolutely, right? I mean, uh, even academia is changing pretty fundamentally, right? It used to be the case that, you know, people like me, who were we supposed to appeal to? Well, the ton of their academics would read uh, our published articles and journals that nobody else would, uh, you know, bother to delve into, right? Um, but it's very difficult to actually uh, advance in my profession now. Uh, unless you have a kind of active media presence. And I imagine that things are only become more and more like that in the future. And I think yeah. this is actually a really good point uh, where we talk about some of the kind of cultural uh, conditions that sustained um, liberal freedom of speech uh, and kind of robust public discourse. And one of the ones that I think has been under theorized, uh, particularly by a lot of the people who castigate you know, cancel culture, uh, is what's sometimes called the emergence of the bourgeois public sphere. Uh, and if you want a great book on this topic, uh, is the structural transformation of the public sphere by uh, Jürgen Habermas, uh, who you might know as a German social theorist, right? Uh, yeah. But one of the things that Habermas points out, and I'll just abbreviate very uh, quickly, uh, is that liberalism and the emergence of liberal society, 
uh, was very much dependent upon a huge number of factors that often aren't acknowledged uh, because early bourgeois theorists like uh, Locke, right, took liberalism to be consistent with human nature and didn't really appreciate how technology uh, needed to change in order to create the kind of people who are amenable to a liberal lifestyle, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that, you know, Habermas points out is, for instance, uh, you had the emergence of the printing press, which made books, uh, you know, and I noticed your picture in the background, right, uh, available to a mass public on a scale uh, never before seen, right? Uh, and at the same time, the, of course, literacy levels rose. Uh, and when you have a huge number of people who start living their lives uh, as literate people, uh, that changes their mentality about politics, right? Uh, and you can start to see this, um, Habermas points out, in the Enlightenment, uh, because people who read books and deliberate about ideas and try to think through things uh, tend to place a greater and greater emphasis on the importance of speech, right? Uh, being yeah. able to say what you think. Uh, and they also put a greater level of importance on things like debate, right? Uh, because, you know, somebody prints a book saying, this is my argument for society or whatever it happens to be. Uh, on you know women's issues or whatever, uh, somebody reads that, thinks it through, and says, "I might think there might be a problem with that, or I agree with it, but you know this is the issue." Uh, and then what do they do? They produce a book in response to this, right? Uh, and this literate culture uh, was so prominent and so important in the formation uh, of modern liberal societies that Neil Postman, who's another social theorist, the author of "Amusing Ourselves to Death," says that by the time the abolitionist movement started to gain headway in the United States. A large number of the population was capable of reading. Uh, they had high attention spans. They were really interested in ideas and listening to the other side because that's what they've been kind of primed to do. Uh, so when Abraham Lincoln uh, and other abolitionists uh, would debate people arguing for slavery in the global south, people would come and listen to speeches that were sometimes six or seven hours long uh, wow. from both sides, right? Um, wow. And you know, people would confront the complexities of these different positions, right? Lincoln would sit there and give three hours worth of arguments for the abolition of slavery. Uh, you know, one of his anti-abolitionist opponents would come and give you know, three hours of probably pseudoscientific justifications for why slavery should be maintained. Uh, and people would go away from that, you know, having a fairly firm understanding of the issue. Uh, and you don't have this kind of bourgeois public sphere operating in the same way uh, when you get to the 21st century. And this is another point that Postman makes uh, and other social theorists like Baudrillard make, right? Uh, that we now live in, we're in a period where the literate bourgeois public sphere has given way to hyper real, uh, to a hyper real retreat from complexity. Uh, a lot of that fostered by digital media, right? Mm -hmm. um, because digital media allow, uh, you know, encourages you not to uh, iterate complexity the way that a book might, for example, but to try to boil things down to their simplest most catchy uh, and most kind of polemical essence, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and the consequence of a lot of this, and you know, TV played a role also with Postman's point back in the 1980s, uh, is that people aren't as capable of dealing with complexity any longer, right? Yeah. Uh, and they're also less capable of dealing with social divisions than they were before, uh, because you know, once upon a time, you know, you would have been exposed to a variety of different viewpoints and their strongest possible form, which encourage you to take what we now call a liberal attitude towards things. Like, well, maybe yes, maybe no. Uh, whereas now, you know, with uh, this retreat from complexity, you see people approaching issues like sports, right? To go back to a point you made earlier, right? Where I have my team uh, and I only listen to the information from my team. Uh, all that information is boiled down to its simplest possible essence. Uh, and of course, the simplest way to approach anyone who deviates from my standpoint uh, is that they're bad and they're wrong 
and I also don't like them because they encourage me to think about the world in a complicated way, which I've not been trained to do any longer. Uh, so my intention should just be to evoke the modern lingual, destroy them, right? You know, just destroy them, silence them, marginalize them, do whatever it is that I can, right? Uh, and we see iterate, we see examples of this all around us, right? Uh, and this is why I often point out that the kind of dark mirror uh, to cancel culture uh, is somebody like Ben Shapiro or Dave Rubin, right? Uh, figures who don't necessarily call for cancellation, but try to prime their audience to retreat from complexity as much as possible uh, and to see the world in times of these very binary oppositions, uh, which allow their partisan supporters to rest easy uh, with their convictions uh, that'll be never be unsettled, right? Uh, and this is all very advantageous uh, in the current media environment we have right now. So if we want to get rid of cancel culture and we want to get rid uh, of you know, polemical personalities like Ben Shapiro or whatever it happens to be, uh, what we need to do is again, have a much harder look at the technologies that we use uh, and try to figure out, to go back to your cigarette metaphor, how to deploy them more responsibly uh, and to try to recreate the conditions for a literate and reflective public sphere like we had um, prior to the emergence of these new media. Yeah, I should say, you know, I'm, I'm kind of hypocritical oh. for this. I'm on, I'm on Facebook, I'm on, you know, Twitter, uh, you know, I'm on YouTube, uh, and I like all these things, right? I'm a millennial, uh, you know, I grew up with technology. I think a lot of it's really cool, and it has some real potential uh, to, yeah. I think, better communication uh, and to offer people a rich uh, source of information that wasn't available before, right? Uh, I just don't think this is what us often doing in many cases, which is why we need to have this more deep reflection on how these things are used. Oh yeah, uh, what, what my point was that when it comes to freedom of expression, I think social media is now playing a huge role when it comes to free speech. And I think social media in a way is also now becoming the biggest threat to free speech because of the digital mob. And uh, uh, historically, whenever it has been the threat to the free speech, uh, the difference between the past and the present is that in the past and when you know when you used to have the famous witch hunts or the the mob used to go after a particular person it was limited to that geographical area or that locality or that block to be very precise then with mass media we had a little more spread with social media you have the potential to being socially ostracized globally we have to consider the downstream effects of something like this, where you have a platform that is making people addicted without a statutory warning. It is destroying free speech and careers, not on a local scale. Like there are people who can't find jobs. Let's say if you are a person in America, right? If what you do in America has repercussions in the entire Anglosphere, you can't find a job in Australia too <laughs> if you're, uh, you know, sabotaged on social media. That's what I worry. So, uh, uh, Dion, uh, I hope you get what I'm trying to say. It's like uh, social media to me is the biggest threat now to free speech in its weirdest way. Oh, I absolutely agree. And one of the things that I often talk about, uh, and I really encourage my students to avoid, I should say, uh, since you know most of my students are Zoomers now and they're even more insulated uh, in the tech bubble uh, than maybe I was. Uh, I hope I didn't sound like a Luddite by saying that, because again, I don't think social media is bad in any way, shape or form, right? Uh, but you know, it's this problem of siloing, right? And it's one of the things I didn't bring up, right? Uh, where a lot of people tend to silo in their own ideological groups, right? Uh, where there are the same narratives endlessly repeated, um, you know, ad hoc without really a lot of deviation. Uh, and again, this all encourages a retreat from the complexity of the world uh, and from the kind of complexity which are human beings uh, and their various ideological, religious, uh, and political viewpoints, 
right? Uh, and when you silo in a group and you're encouraged to only see the other side as enemies, it shouldn't be surprised that when you briefly come out of your silo, it's only to attack the people on the other side uh, and to shade them as bad and suggest that the world will just be better off without them, uh, rather than looking at them as people that you could learn from uh, or who might have some insights into the world that you and your own social group lack, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, uh, I'm not saying that as somebody who's claiming, you know, impartiality here, right? I have my own set of political convictions. You know, I'm a man of the left. I've always been, and I'm very proud about that, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean that, you know, people on the left can't learn from people on the right or vice versa, right? Uh, and I think they should, and I think that there's too little of that that goes on uh, today, right? Yeah. Uh, so I'm conscious of your, of your time, Matt. So before we wrap things up, uh, I wanted to ask you one last question. So what are, what are they, are there any new projects? Because we've already had a podcast about postmodern conservatism and your uh, book. So what's coming up next? Uh, so what do you, uh, what, what is in the line? What, what are you writing about next now? Sure. Uh, I have a new book that'll be coming out soon with Paul Gray McMillan. Uh, it's a pretty dense academic book called um, Liberalism and Liberal Rights, a Critical Legal Argument, uh, which is kind of my take uh, on liberalism. Uh, and it concludes with an argument for uh, what I might call broadly liberal socialism, right? Uh, you know, society that respects freedom of speech, freedom of expression, uh, freedom of religion, all the standard liberal liberties, uh, while at the same time uh, redistributing wealth in a way that I feel is compatible uh, with basic principles of justice. Uh, I also have an essay collection that'll be coming out also with Pal Gray McMillan. Uh, this isn't just by me though. Uh, it's on liberalism and socialism. Uh, moral enemies are close kin uh, and includes some comments uh, by other left-wingers like me, uh, but I was also able to get um, some prominent right-wing contributors as well. Uh, you might know Jason Brennan, uh, who's the author of Against Democracy uh, and has written a number of books on the importance of libertarianism. Uh, he's making a contribution so my hope is that this essay collection will give people a kind of panoramic view uh, of the debates between liberals and socialists, uh, mm -hmm. emphasizing you know, the differences that you know, exist between these two traditions, uh, but also stressing, I hope, some of the commonalities uh, that persist, particularly in this highly partisan time. Uh, and the last thing that I have going on is um, I'm negotiating with Zero right now uh, to release a new book, <laughs> which is uh, on why the political left can never get along. Uh, and I kind of open it up with uh, this kind of ironic comment, which is that uh, if you read people like Ben Shapiro or Jordan Peterson, they always treat the left like it's some kind of monolith, right? Um, yeah. You know, there's these postmodern neo-Marxists who are out to get you and they all believe the same thing and they're there to try to destroy Western civilization and turn all men into women and so on and so forth, right? Uh, and my kind of comment is that uh, the irony of this is that if you've ever spent, ever spent any time on the political left, uh, the kind of running joke is it's a bunch of people who all stand in a circle, take a gun out, uh, and then aim at one another for these really petty uh, and often kind of bullshitty differences. Uh, and I find this a, an unfortunate situation, but the book is meant to kind of analyze why it is that people on the left don't tend to get along with one another. Uh, and of course, to offer my own kind of uh, suggestion about what could unite us uh, and what kind of principles that we should take uh, as sources of unity rather than sources of discontent. So right, those are a couple of projects that are coming on. That sounds like a lot of fun. I look forward to those books. I'll definitely read them. I love reading your articles all the time. And, uh, you know, once once they're out, I'll definitely read them and uh, I'll call you back on the podcast and we can maybe have a have a chat about all, all those ideas. So, so uh, you know, you, you've heard it, guys. Uh, free speech is a complicated subject. Uh, it's not as easy as people make it sound to be. Uh, you, you know, 
most of you guys who listen to me are basically people who live in India or from India. And and when it comes to India, you know, we have a, a very different set of uh, rules and regulations. Uh, and uh, we don't have free speech in India. And I always say that, you know, we, we should aspire to go with the American standard, I think, at least in terms of the power the state has. And uh, I don't know when it's going to happen. I, I really think it's very highly unlikely that it's going to happen uh, until I, I at least uh, until I'm alive. I don't see it happening in the next 50 years in India. Maybe I'm proven wrong. But yeah, it's very important to understand why free speech is important and the different contours of free speech, what cancel culture is. And, and I'm grateful to Matt, you know, who has come today and who has explained the variations uh, when it comes to free speech and and it's very important to get a, a left-wing perspective uh, uh you know a lot of times people uh, and matt is right actually and it's not just that it doesn't happen on the left i think the left also tends to you know kind of caricature the entire right wing and uh, and my aim through this podcast has always been that you know let us reach out to each other now, I, I definitely have the disagreements with Matt when it comes to economics and socialism. But but what I try to do is uh, I make a conscious effort of reading everything Matt writes. Why do I do that? Because otherwise I'm not going to grow. If you don't read, you don't grow. If you don't read the other side, you don't learn. And if anybody who thinks that I have figured everything out, well, you know what? Uh, you've not figured everything out. And as far as you know, Matt's articles and Matt's books are concerned, uh, I'm going to leave everything in the description of the podcast. Please buy his books. Please read his articles. I always say this on Twitter. You know, Matt is my favorite progressive. Uh, every time somebody asks me, you know, who, who tell me one progressive whom we're supposed to go and read. I always tell them, you know, go and fire, follow this guy from Canada. He's amazing. So, Matt, once again, as always, it was a pleasure talking to you. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you as always. Um, and I just wanted to say to anyone who's listening, uh, this has been one fucked up year, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, it's been really messed up. Uh, and if there's one thing that we can all agree on, I think it's that. Uh, so I just hope that everyone's staying safe uh, and that we all make it out of 2020. Uh, maybe a little worse for the wear, uh, maybe a little bit more dependent on some of our bad habits, uh, but alive and kicking, right? So thank you. All right, guys. So I'll see you guys next time. You know the drill. If you like what I do over here, please subscribe to the podcast, like the video, share it, and leave your comments on the uh, you know in the comment section. If you want to support me, you can join the membership program on YouTube. You can also go on Patreon.com and support me there. You know I've started this new series where we are going to have a thorough discussion of all religious books, starting with Hinduism. We're going to cover many Hindu books. So if you want to do that with me, please join Patreon or YouTube. Until then, I'll see you next time. Namaste. Take care. Goodbye.